Section 5 of The Charwoman's Daughter by James Stevens, Chapters 9 and 10. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 9 Mary Make-Believe walked along for some time in the park. Through the railings flanking the great roads, many beds of flowers could be seen. These were laid out in a great variety of forms, of stars and squares and crosses and circles, and the flowers were arranged in exquisite patterns. There was a great star which flamed with red flowers at the deep points, and in its heart a heavier mass of yellow blossom glared suddenly. There were circles wherein each ring was a differently colored flower, and others where three rings alternated, three rings white, three purple, and three orange, and so on in slenderer circles to the tiniest diminishing. Mary Make-Believe wished she knew the names of all the flowers, but the only ones she recognized by sight were the geraniums, some species of roses, violets, and forget-me-nots and pansies. The more exotic sorts she did not know, and while she admired them greatly, she had not the same degree of affection for them as for the commoner, friendlier varieties. Leaving the big road, she wandered into wider fields. In a few moments the path was hidden, the outside cars, motor cars, and bicycles had vanished as completely as though there were no such things in the world. Great numbers of children were playing about in distinct bands. Each troop was accompanied by one and sometimes two older people, girls or women who lay stretched out on the warm grass or leaned against the tree trunks reading novelettes, and around them the children whirled and screamed and laughed. It was a world of waving pinafores and thin black-stockinged legs and shrill sweet voices. In the great spaces, the children's voices had a strangely remote quality. The sweet high tones were not such as one heard in the streets or in houses. In a house or a street, these voices thudded upon the air and beat sonorously back again from the walls, the houses, or the pavements. But out here, the slender sound sang to a higher tenuity and disappeared out and up and away into the treetops and the clouds and the wide windy reaches. The little figures partook also of this diminuendo effect. Against the great grassy curves, they seemed smaller than they really were. The trees stirred hugely above them. The grass waved vast beneath them, and the sky ringed them in from immensity. Their forms scarcely disturbed the big outline of nature. Their laughter only whispered against the silence, as ineffectual to disturb the gigantic serenity as a gnat's wing fluttered against a precipice. Mary Make-Believe wandered on. A few cows lifted solemnly curious faces as she passed and swung their heavy heads behind her. Once or twice half a dozen deer came trotting from beyond the trees and were shocked to a halt on seeing her. A moment's gaze and away like the wind, bounding in a delicious freedom. Now a butterfly came twisting on some eccentric journey, ten wing beats to the left, twenty to the right, and then back to the left or with a sudden twist, returning on the path which it had already traversed, jerking carelessly through the sunlight. Across the sky, very far up, a troop of birds sailed definitely. They knew where they were going. Momently, one would detach itself from the others in a burst of joyous energy, and sweep a great circle, and back again to its comrades, and then away, away, away to the skyline. 
Ye swift ones, O oh, freedom and sweetness, a song falling from the heavens, a lilt through deep sunshine. Happy wanderers, how fast ye fly, and how bravely, up and up, till the earth has fallen away, and the immeasurable heavens, and the deep loneliness of the sunlight, and the silence of great spaces, receive you. Mary Make-Believe came to a tree around which a circular wooden seat had been placed. Here, for a time, she sat looking out on the wide fields. Far away in front, the ground rolled down into valleys and up into little hills, and from the valleys the green heads of trees emerged, and on the further hills, in slender distinct silhouette and in great masses, entire trees could be seen. Nearer were single trees, each with its separate shadow and a stream of sunlight flooding between, and everywhere the greenery of leaves and of grass, and the gold of myriad buttercups and multitudes of white daisies. She had been sitting for some time when a shadow came from behind her. She watched its lengthening and its queer bobbing motion. When it grew to its greatest length, it ceased to move. She felt that someone had stopped. From the shape of the shadow, she knew it was a man, but being so close, she did not like to look. Then a voice spoke. It was a voice as deep as the rolling of a sea. "'Hello,' said the voice. "'What are you doing here all alone, young lady?' Mary Make-Believe's heart suddenly spurted to full speed. It seemed to want more space than her bosom could afford. She looked up. Beside her stood a prodigious man. One lifted hand curled his moustache. The other carelessly twirled a long cane. He was dressed in ordinary clothing, but Mary Make-Believe knew him at once for that great policeman who guided the traffic at the Grafton Street crossing. Chapter 10 The policeman told her wonderful things. He informed her why the Phoenix Park was called the Phoenix Park. He did not believe there was a phoenix in the zoological gardens, although they probably had every kind of bird in the world there. It had never struck him, now he came to think of it, to look definitely for that bird, but he would do so the next time he went into the gardens. Perhaps the young lady would allow him, it would be a much-appreciated privilege, to escort her through the gardens some fine day, the following day, for instance. He rather inclined to the belief that the phoenix was extinct, that is, died out, and then again, when he called to mind the singular habits with which this bird was credited, he conceived that it had never had a real but only a mythical existence, that is, it was a make-believe bird, a kind of fairy tale. He further informed Mary Make-Believe that this park was the third largest in the world, but the most beautiful. His evidence for this statement was not only the local newspapers, whose opinion might be biased by patriotism, that is, led away from the exact truth, but in the more stable testimony of reputable English journals, such as Answers and Titbits and Pearson's Weekly, he found an authoritative and gratifying confirmation, that is, they agreed. He cited for Mary Make-Believe's incredulity the exact immensity of the park in miles, in yards, and in acres, and the number of head of cattle which could be accommodated therein if it were to be utilized for grazing, that is, turned into grasslands, or if transformed into tillage, the number of small farmers who would be the proprietors of economic holdings, that is, a recondite, that is, 
an abstruse and a difficult scientific and sociological term. Mary Make-Believe scarcely dared lift her glance to his face. An uncontrollable shyness had taken possession of her. Her eyes could not lift without an effort. They fluttered vainly upwards, but before reaching any height, they flinched aside and drooped again to her lap. The astounding thought that she was sitting beside a man warmed and affrighted her blood so that it rushed burningly to her cheeks and went shuddering back again coldly. Her downcast eyes were almost mesmerized by the huge tweed-clad knees which towered like monoliths beside her. They rose much higher than her knees did and extended far out more than a foot and a half beyond her own modest stretch. Her knees slanted gently downwards as she sat, but his jagged straightly forward like the immovable knees of a god which she had seen once in the museum. On one of these great knees an equally great hand rested. Automatically she placed her own hand on her lap and, awestricken, tried to measure the difference. Her hand was very tiny and as white as snow. It seemed so light that the breathing of the wind might have fluttered it. The wrist was slender and delicate, and through its milky covering faint blue veins glimmered. A sudden and passionate wish came to her as she watched her wrist. She wished she had a red coral bracelet on it, or a chain of silver beaten into flat discs, or even two twists of little green beads. The hand that rested on the neighboring knee was bigger by three times than her own. The skin on it was tanned to the color of ripe mahogany wood, and the heat of the day had caused great purple veins to grow in knots and ridges across the back and running in big twists down to the wrists. The specific gravity of that hand seemed tremendous. She could imagine it holding down the strong neck of a bull. It moved continually while he spoke to her, closing in a tense, strong grip that changed the mahogany color to a dull whiteness and opening again to a ponderous, inert width. She was ashamed that she could find nothing to say. Her vocabulary had suddenly and miserably diminished to a yes and no, only tolerably varied by a timid indeed and I did not know that. Against the easy clamor of his speech, she could find nothing to oppose, and ordinarily her tongue tripped and eddied and veered as easily and nonchalantly as a feather in a wind, but he did not mind silence. He interpreted it rightly as the natural homage of a girl to a policeman. He liked this homage because it helped him to feel as big as he looked, and he had every belief in his ability to conduct a polite and interesting conversation with any lady for an indefinite time. After a while, Mary Make-Believe arose and was about bidding him a timid goodbye. She wished to go away to her own little room where she could look at herself and ask herself questions. She wanted to visualize herself sitting under the tree beside a man— she knew that she could reconstruct him to the smallest detail, but feared that she might not be able to reconstruct herself. When she arose, he also stood up and fell so naturally into step beside her that there was nothing to do but to walk straight on. He still withstood the burden of conversation easily and pleasantly and very learnedly. He discussed matters of high political and social moment, explaining generously the more unusual and learned words 
which bristled from his vocabulary soon they came to a more populous part of the park the children ceased from their play to gaze round-eyed at the little girl and the big man their attendants looked and giggled and envied under these eyes mary make-believe's walk became afflicted with a sideward bias which jolted her against her companion she was furious with herself and ashamed she set her teeth to walk easily and straightly but constantly the jog of his elbow on her shoulder or the swing of his hand against her blouse sent her ambling wretchedly arm's length from him when this had occurred half a dozen times she could have plumped down on the grass and wept loudly and without restraint at the park gate she stopped suddenly and with the courage of despair bade him good-bye he begged courteously to be allowed to see her a little way to her home but she would not permit it and so he lifted his hat to her through her distress she could still note in a subterranean and half-conscious fashion the fact that this was the first time a man had ever uncovered before her as she went away down the road she felt that his eyes were following her and her tripping walk hurried almost to a run she wished frantically that her dress was longer than it was that false him if she could have gathered a skirt in her hand the mere holding on to something would have given her self-possession but she feared he was looking critically at her short skirt and immodest ankles he stood for a time gazing after her with a smile on his great face he knew that she knew he was watching and as he stood he drew his hand from his pocket and tapped and smoothed his moustache he had a red moustache it grew very thickly but was cropped short and square and its fibre was so strong that it stood out above his lip like wire one expected it to crackle when he touched it but it never did End of section five.